3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Welcome to a Wednesday breakfast summer broadcasting special. I hope that you are all able to take some time at the moment to just have a little think about your year, what you've done um, in 2021, or maybe you actually don't want to think about that at all, um, or make some plans for next year. I find that I really like to almost like just write a list of some of the things that I kind of want to do in the year coming up and how I felt about the year just gone. Helps me kind of close one chapter in a sense to try and kind of focus on the next one. And if 2021 has taught us anything, it's we've got a lot to do in 2022 um, and the work never stops, really. But in this show, in this summer broadcasting special, we're going to revisit two longer form interviews that were condensed for our breakfast shows. So we're going to listen to the full interviews back to back as they were spoken and designed to be in full conversation with Auntie Hazel from the Grandmothers Against Removals and Sophie Trevitt from the Raise the Age campaign at Change the Record. Before we get stuck in and um, get really down to the heart of what these conversations are going to be about with Auntie Hazel coming up first, we're going to kick off with a beautiful song called Rekindled Systems by Alara. Mussels, fish, birds, berries, yams. Our people used to feast, cooking in old ovens under great trees. Who've watched our life cycles, custodial in style, on the Dungala riverbank, crystal clear, clean, free from carp that muddy bastard. 
he was never invited. Surveyors marking acres and acres, missionaries and Jesus with religious takeover, crown sort of saying, this land is free for the taking, so take it. But first, he needs his irrigation systems and the mass scare of the blacks here. Assimilation schemes devised to divide and dismantle our song line while our forefathers died on frontier lines. We are survivors thanks to our ancestors reviving our song lines with fingers in within an archive of a thousand last kings and natives true trepidation all the while i wear my soul on my sleeve peace when they wonder about my color tell them listen with your ears it's under my skin and listen with your hearts i'm not here on a whim it's flowing through my arteries from my crown to my feet in connection with country
And that was Rekindled Systems by Alara. You're listening to 3CR. You're here with us on Wednesday breakfast. This is a summer special show, and we're taking a longer listen to some of those interviews from the year. Now, we're going to hear from Auntie Hazel from Grandmothers Against Removals. And today, we're listening to that full conversation. In the first part, we're going to speak to Auntie Hazel about a rally that they organised earlier in the year protesting the removal of two Aboriginal children who were taken away from their family, country and community to England by two British carers. The rally was to raise funds for legal fees to bring them home so they can connect with their culture and country again. I started by asking Auntie Hazel how the rally went. It went well. Um, We didn't have a lot of um, people turn up, but that was okay. And the main main thing that was discussed was the fact that there are two Aboriginal children currently living in England with English carers. I don't know whether you're aware mm. of that situation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, like, I, I also spoke about the, the department's commitment that they have in at the front of... inside their foyer at their offices where... You know, it's it's their commitment of working with with families, and so the fact that we have two Aboriginal children currently living in England at this point in time, mm. and their stay is extended until um, July at this point, it's further highlighted. You know, the inadequacies of the department in working with families. So that that was the main topic um, at that point in time and it was also about you know stolen generation is a continuing thing it never stopped even after Kevin Rudd said sorry mm-hmm. and unfortunately this is the 13th anniversary of that apology and so challenging the government as to why this is still occurring yeah. Mm. And what were why were those children taken to England? Why did they go to the UK in the first place? Well, uh, the female foster carer was a manager at an NGO called Kari, and she was actually the the two children's caseworker prior to being a manager, mm. and she her and her partner were authorised as carers and the children were placed in their care. Now, the difficult thing with that that I have is that they were only here in Australia on a working visa. Um, They don't have dual citizenship or anything like that. And it fails the imagination as to why they were even endorsed as carers within Australia, given the fact that they were here on working visas. So the the male foster carer, because they had to go back to England every six months to update their working visa, mm. um, the male carer did not come back to Australia, so the female carer wanted to go back to England. Um, and the department signed off on 
the two children going back with them to England. And Mum found out um, last year, uh, early February, that the children were to fly out the next day. Um, And I was contacted and made many, many phone calls and um, was very vocal with the department about the fact that we were the world was in a global pandemic at that point in time um, and that these children should not be flown out of Australia. They didn't go at that point in time um, pending a medical condition um, assessment of the children. Mum and Dad both, um, Mum and Dad's not together, Mum's got another child here in Australia in out-of-home care and Dad's got another another child to another relationship. Um, so Mum and Dad are both were both saying they didn't want the children to go to England at all. And the department agreed to them going over with the carers on the proviso that they return in six months' time. So the children did go to England last year. They were due to come back in October. The two foster carers are refusing to return to Australia with the children or have the children return. Um, So the department tried to negotiate with them. Um, They did offer to buy them a house anywhere in Australia. Mm. They offered to buy them a car, fully furnish their house, um, pay them a wage, a weekly wage, and on top of their carer's payment if they were to return to Australia with the children. The carers are refusing to do that. In actual fact, they're refusing to engage with the department now, the department's saying that they've got to um, listen to the voices of the children. The children are globetrotting, um, so they're saying they want to stay with the foster carers. Mm. They don't want to come back to Australia. They don't want to have anything to do with, have any contact with mum or dad or their siblings living in Australia. Um and like my argument is, I have you know forty one grandchildren. If the department was to offer even half of them the possibility of globe trotting and going to all these wonderful places, I'm sure they'd all be putting their hands up to go as well. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is, these are First Nation children. They should not be out of the country. Um, how do they, you know, grow up to be strong Aboriginal children as adults um, if, if they're not engaging with their culture? Yeah. And, you know, mum, mum and the family are meant to have um, visitation with these children. That's not even occurring because they're in another country. Wow. You know, it's a very, very difficult situation. And the sad thing is, this is um, 
this is not an isolated case. Mm. I mean, how yeah. have two British foster carers got more say in what happens to those children than the community? How has it even got to that point? Oh, I know. It just defies imagination. My argument is um, why are they still classified as carers within Australia under Australian law? How How is that possible when they haven't got dual citizenship? They're not in Australia. They're currently living overseas. How is the department maintaining these children's safety? Um, you know, they're well, failing exactly. in care. Their, the department's argument is that they're liaising with the departments over in England. Um, I mean... What do, the they, what do they know about of Aboriginal children in England? Well, that's right. Mm. And, you know, I've recently spoken to a... Um, well, he's young to me, um, a young man that was taken as a baby to to Holland and he came back to Australia 20 years ago and he's 41 years of age now and he's, he's reconnecting with his family and he's very distraught about it because he, you know, I did speak to him last Wednesday and he said he knows exactly what's going to happen with these children like. They're not going to know where they come from. It's it's a very, very hard situation. And the department has admitted to me that this is not an isolated case. Now, I don't know whether they're Aboriginal children that are currently living in foreign countries with carers. Um, but the bottom line is these children, regardless of their race or their culture... They are Australian children and they do have Australian families here. So why are they being shipped out to other countries with foreign carers? Mm. It, it, it's a flaw within the system, another flaw it's, that needs yeah. to be rectified. Do they know, do they... Do they um... Do they know it's a flaw within their system? Is it something that they are looking to change or are they not really looking to to cover that? In I, any... I, don't, I don't feel that they're looking at change. Mm. Um, they're telling me it's a loophole that this has occurred, but as I said, this is not an isolated case. So they're aware that there's a loophole within their system um, this should have been rectified straight away. The fact that these carers aren't Australian citizens, they don't have dual citizenship, um, alone should have, should have stopped them becoming carers. Exactly. If they have to do a visa run every six months, they probably shouldn't be carers in Australia. No, no, and... Like, as I said, it, it has been acknowledged to me that it's a, a loophole. Mm. Um, and I said, well, for Christ's sake, you better get in there and close that loophole because it's getting wider. Like, it just opens the door and sets a precedent for this to occur on a regular basis. And how do we know as individual families mm -hmm. um, that 
that this is happening? How do we know how many children are in this situation where they're shipped to another country? And But now they're, they're citing the fact that these carers and these children have a bond um, and the fact that, you know, that overrides mum's bond with them because mum, they're not living with mum, they're in the system. Um, but as I say to the department, you're further widening and breaking down that bond mm-hmm. where these children now are saying they don't want to come back, they don't want to see mum, they don't want to see dad, they don't want to see nan and even their siblings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've always said, you know, these children have a voice, they need to be heard. But the department's picking and choosing. Now they're saying we have to listen to the children. Well, my argument with that is they don't listen to the children when they're taking them. They don't consider that these children have a bond with their family. They, they don't consider that at all when they're removing children. Mm. And I think... So, if, yeah. You know, mm. And if you're not familiar with the way that the family services are working and operating in this case, in these cases, as as an ignorant listener, maybe you might think, oh, well, if if the children are being taken out of risky homes or families that are in crisis, then it might be it might be for the best. But what is actually happening when when children and babies are being taken away from their mothers and their families and communities? Do services even need to give a reason as to why they're taking the children away? Nine nine times out of ten, we're we're not given a reason. I'll explain. I had grandchildren in out-of-home care. Um, I had four grandchildren in out-of-home care. we weren't given a reason. Um, I was I was deemed un, unsuitable to have my grandchildren. When they when they take take the children from families, um, they don't they don't only take them from mum and dad, mum or dad. Um, they take them from the whole of family, the whole of community. The process that they're meant to go through, um, where they're meant to liaise with family, where best can we put these these little ones, um, I like to call it respite, so that we can look at the issues, if indeed that there are, um, and how, how do we build a strong family whilst these children are in a safe environment. They're... They're meant to look at family first, then community, then the broader community. Um, they don't they don't do any of that process. They go straight to the removal, and nine times out of ten, the children are placed with non-family and non-community member. the The difficult thing is also if they are placed with a family member. The department looks at breaking down that that family relationship by saying to, like in my situation, um, 
your daughter's not allowed to come to the house, your daughter's not allowed to do this, your daughter's not allowed to do that. To me, that that's putting that word between family and trying to break down that bond. Whereas if, if the children are placed with a family member, say Nan, a sibling, or another fa- extended family member, then that little one is going to know that family member. So the trauma inflicted on that child alone is going to be very minimal. And where, you know, if mum can come to the house and visit with that little one, then it's up to the carer to determine whether it is okay at that time. Now, say mum comes and she's drug affected or she's alcohol affected, then I can assure you 100% that I would be saying, no, not at this time. So what what it's all meant to do is strengthen the family unit. So helping put in place mechanisms that is going to build that family to a strong family. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast and that was Auntie Hazel. We're going to get right back with Auntie Hazel in part two for this longer conversation after this short break. I know you'd like to hear a song Since everything's alright The temperature is warm
Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. That was Spinifex Gum with a Cat Empire cover no longer there. Now we're going to take a listen to part two with Arnie Hazel about the continuous removal of children and the ongoing stolen generations, the effect on families, culture and community and the intergenerational trauma of the stolen generations. I first asked Auntie Hazel how hard it is for not just the parents, but the grandparents and the rest of the community when children are removed. It, it, it is very, very hard. One of my grandsons that was in out-of-home care, I had a very close relationship with him prior to him going into care. And, and it's sad even today um, he doesn't remember ever being in my home um, prior to him coming to live with me and his pop mm. um, through the department. He does, doesn't never remember having a relationship with me and we had a very, very close bond. And there are behavioural issues mm. um, where they felt they do still say the children, oh, you never, you've never wanted us, and 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 that's hard because we never, as a family, stop fighting to bring them home. Mm. So we're we're all still, you know, um, all these years later, trying to heal as a family. Mm. It's very hard. And is that quite common um, when children come back and return to their their mothers and the communities? Is it hard to process that trauma together of being removed? It, it is. It is very, very hard. It, it's extremely hard for an adult um, like myself. I use myself as the example. It's, it's very, very hard because I'm their nan. Um, it, it hurts me a lot to see the suffering because we as families, we suffer too as adults. But at least sometimes, you know, we can work through it at an adult level. We never get away from it. It's, it's always there, that trauma mm. of that stolen time that we can never, ever get back. No one can ever give back what was taken but it's it's also very very hard for me to see my daughter suffer and to put my my suffering to the side and try and support her to keep her strong in how she helps her children to deal with this and it's it's extremely hard I can't begin to explain how hard it is to see the pain in her heart, her eyes, in how do I help my children. Mm-hmm. The children don't know how to rationalise things. It's very, very hard for them to no longer become a victim of the system, but a survivor 
of the system. And that's a lifelong road that we as families have to travel. And sometimes we get there and sometimes we don't. And that's that's the hardest thing of all to to deal with when when the kids are saying, you know, oh, what, what do you want me for? You never wanted me all those years. It, it's so hard because how do you show them? You can only try and show them through love, through understanding that this is not bad behaviour. These aren't bad children. What they're saying is born out of pain. They have been silent for so long because they've been in out-of-home care. It's only natural that they're going to lash out. And every time they lash out, it's a new trauma that comes on top. So it's constantly building and building. And the only thing that we can hope is that on some level we can get through because they don't, the children don't see that we as parents and family are suffering too. They're locked into their own suffering and it comes out looking as you know, the, these are uncontrollable children. Well, no, they're not uncontrollable children. They're just expressing themselves in such a way to get out the hurt mm. and suffering that they're feeling because they don't know how to process it. A lot of adults don't know how to process it. And it, and it is an intergenerational trauma for many people. It, it is. My own grandmother and my auntie, they were removed many, many moons ago as little girls um, and they were taken to Kudamundra. And they they did run away and they did find their way home. Wow. And I remember as a little girl, my nanny, um, she did, didn't talk about it a lot. But she say little things like they they would have to get up at four thirty five o'clock in the morning and scrub the cobble floors and and these sorts of things and that plays on my mind. I grew up around welfare. They were called welfare back back in my day, and. You know, we were constantly being told by family, um, community members. I grew up on a mission. You know, if you muck up, the welfare will get you. You don't go to school, the welfare will get you. I grew up in a time when we had a, a manager, an English manager living on the mission that controlled our, you know, goings and to and from the mission and how long we could stay and things like this. So it was total dictatorship. Mm. And and I know that I said to my children when they were growing up, you know, if, if you do this and you don't go to school, the welfare will get you. 
Um, so that that. And the welfare was known as the people that would come and take the children. Yes. So back in the, the my day, you know, they weren't called docs or DCJ like they're called now. They were called welfare, mm. and they would come and take the children. And we knew as as little kids that if the white car come up the road, we had to run and hide until our mums told us we could come home. So we'd hide in the bush. And so there was always that fear that we were going to be taken away. And I did that with my own children. And my children do it as adults with with their children. You know, if, if you don't go to school, the welfare will take you. Like they don't say welfare now because they weren't around when welfare was in place. But they say docs will take you. So it's a, it's a thing that is passed down, that that fear, that distrust of a, a department. And the reason the department, in my opinion, fails in their duty of care is because the system is still based on genocide. It is still based on the protection board that was set up, you know, when invasion, like they... Mm-hmm. If, if whole of Australia knows that, you know, they tried to kill out a race by poisoning their food, poisoning their water holes, mass murders, um, and all this, when that didn't work, and they couldn't annihilate a race of people. They brought in the Assimilation Act. And so stolen generation was to do with assimilating us as a people to wipe out our culture. Now, that never occurred. It did not achieve the goals they wanted. And that's why children are still being taken today. And you've only got to look at these two children in England as a classic example. They are across in another foreign country. They have no way of knowing about their ancestors. They have no way of learning about their ancestral footprint. Mm. If you talk about walk about they have they would have no idea you talk about the dream time to them they would have no idea these are only things that we as aboriginal people can teach and it you cannot instill a pride in anybody regardless of their race in their culture through learning through a book mm. Because their culture is is a living thing. It's a learning by living experience. It's what's inside of them that will make them proud to stand up one day and say they're proud to be Aboriginal. They're proud of their heritage. Every child that is born to this earth has a heritage. And that, that's their birthright, to know who they are, 
where they come from and where they're going in life. Mm. Because one day these children are going to be adults. They're going to become parents. So it's a constant breakdown of culture. How do they teach their children, their grandchildren, where they come from and who they actually are if they don't know themselves? It's sad. Yeah. And, I mean, Kevin Rudd apologised, said sorry. Oh, yes. I mean, he said it was going to be a new chapter. That was in 13 years ago. Yes. I mean, what was he apologising for if it never stopped? And and I've certainly spoken to Kevin um, about that. And, and I told him point blank that I thought he was an idiot. Um, but being sorry about something... If you're not genuine, then it's not worth the words that are spoken. Yes, it most definitely would have been a political move on his part. I I fully acknowledge that. There may have been an essence of, you know, genuineness in in what he said. But it it becomes a mockery to me. Mm. Because he did say sorry, and I'll give him points for that. But what I take away those points for is, and I've spoken to him in person about this, why isn't he out there challenging the government of today for not upholding his apology? Why isn't he challenging the government as to why this is still occurring? Mm -hmm. He did say that it stopped, it had to stop, that this was not to continue. He has a responsibility to First Nation people of today to question the government as to why this is still occurring, Mm -hmm. and in higher numbers, in actual fact, prior to him apologising to... First Nation people of today, it's it, it's gone way above the numbers today. Yeah, I mean, you posted on your responsibility. Yeah, I saw the post on your Facebook group just highlighting the the massive acceleration in numbers now. Yes, and Victoria it, it, being one of the ex- worst, I believe. Yes. And it's sad, like, I'm not, I'm not saying and I never have said that there's not a point where a child needs to be removed. If a child is in danger, then that child needs to be protected. There's, there's no question about that. But the question and the issue that I have in relation to a removal is why, like in my last little grandson that was removed, he was 15 months old, there were four docks workers and eight or nine police. He was 15 months old. Wow. 
I, I think that that's excessive mm. um, in anybody's language. But there was no reason for that little baby, my little grandson, to go anywhere. I've, I've never drank in my life. I've never done drugs. I don't have a criminal record. I've worked most of my adult life. Um, and yet I was deemed unsuitable to have my grandson. And they don't give my, you a reason as to why you were apparently no, unsuitable? No, no. In actual fact, I was told they don't have to give me a reason. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not, that's just not good enough. Yeah. I, as I said, I've got 41 grandchildren. Um, I could have all of my other grandchildren at my home, sleeping in my home, except my daughter's four. And, and how is that justifiable? I had to actually be assessed by a department that failed and that is flawed to be able to have my four grandchildren in my home. Mm-hmm. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. This is a summer broadcasting special. You're here with me, Alice, and you've just heard from Auntie Hazel from Grandmothers Against Removals about her own experience with children being removed from families and the devastating intergenerational effect it has on Indigenous families and communities. We're going to be right back after this short break. Here's Lydia Fairhall with Free. You 
was Lydia Fairhall with Free. And now we're going to take a listen to Sophie Trevitt in a conversation that we had earlier in the year. Back in November, the government announced they would be raising the age for the minimum age for incarcerated children from 10 years old to 12 years old. The attorneys general agreed to develop a proposal to raise the age from 10 to 12, but this is still disastrously young and does not meet the proposals put together by countless Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander activist groups who have been at the forefront of challenging this. One of those groups is Change the Record, Australia's only national Aboriginal-led justice coalition of legal health and family violence prevention experts, whose mission is to end the incarceration of and family violence against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. This group's campaign, Raise the Age, has been fighting for the age of incarcerated children to be raised from 10 to the global median average of 14 years old. We're going to listen to Sophie Trevitt. Sophie is the Executive Officer of Change the Record and the ACT Co-Chair of Australian Lawyers for Human Rights. I spoke to Sophie before November's announcement. So throughout this conversation, you'll hear the age being referred to as 10 years old. But raising the age from 10 to 12 doesn't change the message behind this conversation. It's still too young and the effects are still disastrous. And especially, I think it's interesting listening to Sophie straight after Auntie Hazel, because we see from two different sides of the coin how taking children away affects communities. I first asked Sophie, what are the incarceration rates like in Australia? Yeah, for both children and for adults, the proportion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that are incarcerated compared to their non-Indigenous counterparts is, is through the roof. So... Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the most incarcerated people on earth um, here in Australia. And, you know, that starts at the age of 10 for for many very young children who are dragged into the criminal justice system. In places like the Northern Territory where I used to work, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are over 40 times more likely to be um, arrested by police and thrown behind bars than their non-Indigenous peers. So it's a real crisis that starts at a very young age and then, you know, it's not just a, a prison sentence, it's also a life sentence for many people. And part of Change the Record's huge campaign is of Raise the Age. Can you tell us a little bit about this campaign? The Raise the Age campaign, I mean, people, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and grandmothers, have been fighting to raise the age for a really long time. Um, and it comes from the the fact, the terrible fact that in Australia, in every state and territory, children as young as 10 years old can be arrested by police, hauled before courts, thrown into prison cells. Now, the median age um, globally is 14, which is still extremely young. Um, but if you think about a 10-year-old in Australia, the average 10-year-old still needs to be in a car booster seat. They're, they're not big enough to, to be able to, to, wow. to sit in a car with a seatbelt. So we're talking about very, very little children. Um, and, you know, I, I had experience of, of working with kids as young as 10 who had been arrested by police. And it is just so confronting to see a tiny, tiny child um, who, you know, you would normally see, well, if you have kids, you would, you would see them at home, but you would see them, you know, mm. in, in playgrounds with other tiny children doing very childlike things, not being brought into a court, let alone 
being put in a prison away from their parents, away from the people who love them, away from school, away from friends. It's an extremely brutal um, way to treat children. And what we know from all the medical evidence is that it can cause lifelong damage to a child to even be put in prison or to be hauled before the courts for a very short period of time. Um, so that's how that's how I became involved in the campaign and, and we basically started both state and territory and national work to try to convince lawmakers um, to lift the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 14 so that you can no longer send children that young to prison. What type of things are they being charged with, these children? Yeah, so the vast majority of children under 14 are being charged and convicted of very minor crimes. So it's extremely rare that kids that young are being charged with serious offending, extremely, extremely rare that they're being charged with things like violent offending. Um, The majority of kids are being charged with things like property damage. So, you know, that could be graffitiing um, a building or breaking a window or... um, maybe very minor theft and shoplifting, that kind of thing. So these, this is bad behaviour, obviously, and we as adults need to teach kids not to engage in that kind of behaviour. Um, but these are, not, these are not malicious crimes that are, that are designed to hurt members of the community. Um, these are often opportunistic, done in groups of kids who are being influenced by each other, in other contexts would be very childish crimes. I'm sure all of us can think of naughty things that we have done that cross over that threshold. You know, I I remember stealing chocolate-coated licorice bullets from the Video Easy store near my house and getting into serious trouble from my parents, but certainly there was no suggestion of calling the police. And when a child, say between 10 and 14, comes in front of the court or ends up going to prison... How long are they put away for? Is there a a limit? No. So it can really be anything from, you know, days to weeks to months to to even longer. I think one of the most insidious and dangerous parts of the way that Australia, all the states and territories um, deal with both young people and adults, to be honest, is that we lock people up very easily and we often lock them up before they've even been convicted of a crime. And we do this because there are there are long delays in having your matter heard before court because courts are under-resourced, judges are under-resourced. So you actually end up having tiny children being held in prison cells before they've even been found guilty of a crime. And what happens often is that by the time that kid gets brought before a court, the judge says, yes, we think you did the bad thing. So I guess we, you know, we agree with, with the police's charge. You did whatever, steal that baseball cap but we would never send you to prison for it because it's such a minor crime but that kid has already been in prison waiting for their day in court so you actually have this sort of double injustice where not only are you treating children terribly by sending them to prison at all but these kids are spending time in prison without even being convicted of anything potentially for much longer than they would be had a judge just heard their matter much earlier and, uh, I mean, I'm assuming there is no compensation for something like that. If a judge says, well, we no. wouldn't have done that, actually. No, there isn't. Um, I mean, otherwise, I guess you would you would have many, many people, children and adults, saying we should never have been in there for that amount of time. And it's not uncommon. I think this is one of the most egregious things about the inverted commas justice system is because of all these failings, because of the under-resourcing, 
you have people literally languishing behind bars, particularly women and children seem to be particularly caught in this trap for far longer than they ever would be, even if they were found guilty of the offence. So you're really punishing people in a way that a court or a judge has never sanctioned. What are the actual maybe community-focused programs that are far better than putting people in prison? So I, I feel like there are sort of two categories of this. One is the the programs that respond directly to a person's behaviour. So if you're thinking about kids who are mucking up, there are some amazing programs around the country that respond directly to, okay, why is this kid disengaging from school and, and not going to school um, and, you know, running amok with their friends? And maybe it's a program around... Um, getting kids together, working with animals and teaching them responsibility, or maybe it's a type of um, victim conferencing session where they actually sit with the person whose business they broke into to understand, no, actually it wasn't just this building that you broke into and like chuck some stuff around. There's a real person here who then had to clean that up the next day and actually felt really scared because someone had been in the building without their permission. You know, there's, there's those kind of programs. But then there's the systemic, deep level reform that needs to happen. My um, honest belief from working in the Territory is that the largest driver of crime in the Territory is a lack of housing. I have never worked anywhere where the state of housing is so diabolical. It has been raised in numerous royal commissions, inquiries. Everyone acknowledges that it's an absolute scandal and nothing is being done. Before I worked with children, I worked with adults in the housing space and there was this one incredible grandmother who had six children in her care who had been waiting for housing for six years. She and her children, her grandchildren, sorry, had been homeless. No wonder those kids are running amok. They have nowhere to live. And that is a state failure. That's certainly not a failure of that grandmother who was doing everything Mm -hmm. humanly possible to look after those kids. And it's not a failing of those children who have a basic right to adequate housing. So then you sort of look at it on that level and there are huge government failures that are that are driving people into prisons when actually what they need is their basic human rights being met. That was the first part of mine and Sophie's conversation about the Raise the Age campaign and her experience in the Territory with child incarceration. Now we're going to take a listen to Nagare with Moonshine and be back straight after the break with Sophie. I am night sky, deep purple and blue dye. Some days you can hear me cry. Some days I'm okay but not alright. I'm shaking fierce at these long legs.
Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel a part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. was Nagel with Moonshine and now we're back with Sophie and this time we speak about the effects of the community when children are incarcerated. And what does it do for mothers um, to be separated from their children and families and communities? I think the impact on women is huge. So there's there's twofold, right? There's what does it do to mums and to grandmas to have their kids behind bars? I mean, it breaks their hearts is, is what it does. I predominantly worked with mums and grandmas um, with the kids that I was working with who were in prison. And it is so hard for these families who, you know, already are struggling with things like housing, terrible social security, trying to find work in places where there isn't much work then trying to get out to the youth detention centre, which is located, you know, about 20 k's out of town. So you require a car to get there. They're desperately worried about their kids. And there are all these barriers in place um, to them providing the type of love and care that they want to, to their children because they're being separated. And then you have the other side of it, which is, well, what about when we lock up mums? And what about when we take them away from their kids? And that happens increasingly frequently um, because of these very punitive laws that are introduced that do things like um, make it a, you know, hold you on remand, um, so so lock you up before you've been convicted of anything for relatively minor crimes. So you've got, you know, women who are, who are being, uh, a really common one is women who are charged with inverted commas fraud, fraud, but what fraud actually is is Centrelink inaccuracies. So women who are who are receiving Centrelink, who are often like the primary caregiver for kids, so they're not working, and they might do a little bit of work on the side, you know, just a few hours a week. And if for some reason that hasn't been declared correctly to Centrelink, they get lumped with these enormous debts that they can't pay back because they don't receive enough money. And then they get charged with fraud as if they deliberately scam the system when I promise you that is not the case. Anyone, you know, for your Australian listeners, anyone who's tried to navigate Centrelink, including those of us who are on things like youth allowance when we were at university, know how confusing and difficult that system is. Um, so, you know, if you're trying to navigate it whilst also trying to find housing, trying to deal with a bunch of kids, maybe English is your second or third language it becomes extremely difficult and then you can become criminalised at the end of that process. The other big thing is is police wrongly identifying the perpetrator of domestic violence. So women calling police or other people calling police because a woman is, is uh, suffering domestic violence and when the police get there, the male perpetrator says it was actually her or, or she retaliates and then she's convicted of crimes when actually she is the victim of DV. She ends up doing time in prison separated from her kids. And that causes such huge, huge trauma to both mom and bubs 
who ha- have had one of the most important relationships in their lives severed. And I think what the evidence tells us is that there is a huge connection between children that are put in the child protection system, so who are taken away from their families for whatever reason, including if a parent is in prison, for example, those kids are so much more likely to to become trapped in the criminal justice system because we know that when you break that connection with family, with culture, with community, you're doing harm to kids and, and, and you're pushing them basically into situations where they're more likely to get into trouble. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit more to that cycle of being taken away from your from your mother or from your family as a child being taken into child protection services and potential cycle of then incarceration rates if there is one of course yeah so there is there's a really strong connection and and they call these kids the crossover kids and it's about the crossover between the child protection system and the criminal justice system the crossover happens for a number of reasons. There's a real direct crossover, which happens when kids are criminalised for behaviour that would otherwise be naughty but normal within a household. So, for example, I know of kids who, you know, would get into an argument with other children in a group group facility. Um, so it would be like getting into a fight with your siblings at home. Maybe they throw something out a window and it breaks or they draw on the walls um, or they you know, throw a plate across the room, that all of a sudden stops just being naughty and becomes property damage. And they can then be charged and imprisoned potentially for what would be naughty behaviour but not criminal behaviour in any other context. So there's that type of crossover that happens. And then there's the the sort of uh, longer term or more systemic crossover, which is when you have a child and you take them away from everyone who loves them and supports them and makes them feel safe and confident in who they are, you then expose that kid to a whole bunch of more like additional risks because they don't feel a sense of belonging. They, they don't feel a strong sense of identity. So maybe that means they no longer feel motivated to engage with school because they're unhappy. Or maybe it means they fall into the wrong crowd because they try to find a sense of belonging somewhere else. But you see those kids then get driven into into groups and circumstances where they behave badly, effectively because they're hurting, because you've taken them away from from the things that are important and and nourishing to them and, and put them in a in a traumatic environment. On this show, we heard extended interviews with Auntie Hazel and Sophie Trevitt looking at the child welfare system and the incarceration system, the overlapping between them both and the damage it does for families and communities. It's something that we must continue to fight against in 2022, I think um, that's a given. For now, that is the end of the show. You can carry on your Wednesday morning knowing that you've had a full dose of conversation and you've met two incredible women who are changing the face of what incarceration and child care looks like in Australia. I think 3CR is the voice of the people. 
speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear.
which means my child. We ask the question to ourselves, what are we going to tell our children if we fail to protect our planet?
of Olive. If this is a story about our islands, it is a story for the whole world. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR and both those tracks you just heard were from Small Island Big Song which is a music and film live project featuring over 100 musicians across 16 island nations of the Pacific and Indian Oceans. They create contemporary and relevant musical statements that reflect the regions that are on the front line of cultural and environmental changes and many challenges. The music they create is so powerful and really poignant. I love listening to to these peeps. So I really wanted to bring you two of the favourite tracks that I heard while doing some music research for this show. And so I hope you enjoyed that. Um, the first track was Nakawarawara Tuo and the second track was Teu Tama. And that closes the show for us today. So thank you for listening to our summer broadcasting special here on 3CR. On this show, we heard full interviews from Auntie Hazel at the Grandmothers Against Removals and Sophie Trevitt from the Raise the Age campaign and Change the Record. Thanks for spending your Wednesday morning with me, Alice, on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. And I'll see you very soon in 2022.